Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Orstano, and I played Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I played Billy Riggins. The assumption is, as always, that our listeners have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, go watch Friday Night Lights, which is currently streaming on Netflix and Peacock TV, because there will be spoilers on our podcast. Also, you should go pick up some merch. That's right. We've got a website designed by Eleanor Carez, who is at Eleanor Carez on Instagram. Our website is www.cleareyesfullheartspod.com. Once again, that's cleareyesfullheartspod.com. We've got all kinds of merchandise. We've got hoodies. We've got t-shirts, mugs. Go check it out. Buy something lovely for that person you love. We still want to answer your fan questions, so email us anything you'd like to know at cleareyesfullheartspod at gmail.com. Season three, episode five, Every Rose Has Its Thorns, written by Carrie Aaron and directed by Jason Kadams. The NBC synopsis reads, Cash seems to be the man of Tyra's dreams until his darker side comes to light and Coach Taylor makes a decision that causes Matt to question his future in football. There's a lot to unpack in this episode, but before we get going, I want to answer some of your fan questions. Stacy, you ready for some fan questions? Yeah, I'm going to cue some A's. Okay. No, I'm not. I'm going to A some Q's. You're going to A some Q's? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to A some Q's. There we go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our first question comes from Marie in France, who says, I was totally seduced by Friday Night Lights, all of it, the story, the settings, the genuine acting. I've learned so many things about Texas and football. So here's my question. What elements are the most and the least genuine about American culture throughout the show? I know that it's a big thing. Like throughout Europe, they have American parties where they have like red solo cup parties because red solo cups are apparently something that really kind of only exists in maybe North America or something. I don't know. But the reality is, yes, a lot of high school parties, if there's a keg involved, there will be red solo cups. We just used them last night. (laughs) I mean, to me, it's just I never thought of it as being anything odd or abnormal. But yeah, red solo cups are definitely a part of American life if there's more than 10 people at a gathering. I mean, this was a long time ago. It was the first season, but talking about homecoming and I loved how they used mums, which is something mm-hmm. that's a very big deal in Texas. To be honest, like the least genuine, maybe this just isn't the show for that. I can't yeah. think of something that's ingenuine.
continuous to American culture. One of the things Friday Night Lights kind of nailed, and I think the reason why it's kind of stood the test of time, specifically with an American audience, is because of the fact that it is so genuine and it is so real, and especially about Texas. I mean, it kind of mm. nails life in Texas being a teenager. Some things that are a little bit far-fetched are the fact that all these kids like pretty much have no curfew during the week and they're running around town at all hours of the night. There's some artistic liberties being taken there just for the sake of storytelling because we can't just have them all locked up in their houses 24-7. I don't know about you, but I had a curfew when I was in high school. Yeah, weekdays I had to be home. I got one night to go yeah. out on the weekends and it was still like a 10, 30, 11 curfew. My curfew was like midnight by the time I was like, driving. They had a pretty strict household. Yeah. We would all get together on Wednesday nights or whatever when Beverly Hills 90210 was on. And our parents would let us go over to a friend's house. And there would be like 15 of us would go over to a friend's house and we would all watch Beverly Hills 90210 on like a Wednesday night. And that was like a big thing because we were being allowed out on a school night. Not only was I not allowed out on a school night, I wasn't allowed to watch 90210. This is crazy talk. No, there was so much. To, I wasn't allowed to watch Friends. I wasn't allowed to watch Melrose Place or 90210 or any of that. That's crazy. But yeah, I mean, we did have raging parties like they did on Friday Night Lights. I do remember a lot of parties with drinking. I remember a lot of parties out in the middle of nowhere, like Riggins has in episode seven of season one when he and Tyra throw that party. Like there were a lot of parties like that when I was in high school. And as far as the football stuff is concerned, yeah, I mean, Texas is crazy about football the way that the show kind of tackles. Yeah. So like maybe nothing disingenuous here. How about this? Somebody write in things that you find about Friday Night Lights that maybe aren't realistic or kind of a little bit of a stretch or whatever. But that's a great oh. question. Thank you, Marie. And thank you <laughs> from France. Very cool to know that we've got people in Europe that love this show. Let's see. Our next question comes from Brianna Martinez, who writes, I've always noticed some of the houses in the first season aren't the same as the ones later in the show. Example, Grandma Saracen's house and the Taylor household. Was there a reason why this show changed houses for the characters? I don't know that the houses changed throughout seasons, but there were definitely housing changes from the pilot episode mm. to when the show actually started airing. And so what happened, I mean, like the Riggins house, for instance, that we used for the pilot was not the same house that we wound up using in the show. And I think a lot of that just comes down to the logistics of, okay, we've got this house to, to shoot in for the pilot, but these people may not be comfortable with us shooting in this house for the next four years, five years, six years, however long a TV show is going to go. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot on this show is locations in general. Friday Night Lights never used sets. We were never like in a studio back lot or something like that shooting on a set. Everything was on location. So we literally rented those houses from people to shoot in. So the Colette house, for instance, which we've talked about, the woman who owned it was so lovely and always so nice and always so welcoming when we were there on set. If I'm not mistaken, I remember her saying, thank you guys so much for coming again, because every time we would come, they got paid a little bit of money. Yeah. And a lot of these houses weren't in the best areas, and a lot of the people didn't have a lot of money. So this was a decent little payday for them. And for her, I'm pretty sure it helped her put her daughter through college or, or her granddaughter through college. I can't remember. She loved it when we were yeah. there. Also, it was just fun. Like, yeah. if you live out in tiny little part of Texas and so much space, and all of a sudden there's like a real legit film crew in your house. It is terribly yeah. exciting. I don't remember the Saracen house changing. I think it might have from the pilot. But that being said, from that point on, it was the same house. And right. I know that for a fact because while the people who own the Saracen house Loved having us there. 
there was a neighbor who did not like having us there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she would always have signs up like, Friday Night Lights is a bunch of liars. And st- <laughs> The funny thing, though, is that even though she was kind of protesting and upset, look, I'm not going to lie. Having a film set come shoot in your neighborhood, I live in L.A. It happens all the time. It's a pain in the butt. Oh, my God. There's trucks everywhere. It's a traffic jam. It's loud. It's a nightmare. And if you're doing a night shoot, there's lights that are big enough to make it look like sunshine that all the houses are going to yeah. see. It's it's a lot. So if you're the house actually being shot, great, you're getting paid. But if it's the house across the street from you that they're shooting in, you're not getting paid. And it's just a massive inconvenience for you. So I can understand people's reservations about wanting to have a film crew in their neighborhood. I get it. It was kind of interesting, though, because this woman who was in a constant protest of them using the Riggins house, they'd say, quiet on set. And she'd immediately be quiet (laughs) and was respectful of the process once we started shooting, which was kind of a lovely thing because it was like, I'm going to protest. I'm going to let you know I'm not happy about you being here. But I'll also respect the fact that there's people trying to work. So oddly sweet. It was. It was. But the minute they yelled cut, she'd start screaming, Friday Night Lights is full of lies. (laughs) But I understand it. I get her reservations about it. But yeah, so from that point on, it was the same house as being used. The Riggins house, there are times where it may not look like it because sometimes there were different tenants that came in because that house was being rented and we would just have the right to come in there and shoot whenever we wanted to. We've talked about them filling in the pool. There was a pool for the first like two or three seasons of the show and then they filled the pool in. And from seasons four and five on, there was a backyard, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I'm not mistaken about the backyard. I just can't remember yeah. when it got filled in. So sometimes locations could change just because of the fact that, hey, we no longer have access to this location. Did we A that cue? I think we <coughs> ate that cue, <laughs> Stacey. I hope we never say that again. Our last question comes from Natalie Terry, who says, in season three, episode four, Smash goes to try out for Texas A&M. Whoop, she says, because that's an Aggie thing. Gig them. Yeah, they go gig them. They do a whoop. I don't know. They put their fingers together like a gun. I don't know. They have yell practice. Texas A&M. So she says, I know the coaches were not A&M's actual coaches at the time, but were the players on the field actors as well? Or did they hire some of the Aggies to shoot the scene in Kyle Field? I know for a fact they did not hire any Texas Aggies. Now, there may have been a guy that formerly played for Texas A&M, but he wasn't specifically hired because of that. All the football players, most of them stuck around for almost all five seasons. And we've actually talked about it before. A lot of them were former college football players. At the minimum, I think they had all played college ball. Some of them had played professional football. Some of them played arena league. Some of them played in the NFL for a short period of time. So we had some legit stud football players. I've always said if you were to line up the actual football players from Friday Night Lights against any high school team in the country, we would have destroyed them because all of them were minimum college athletes. So yeah, they always use those guys. And we've also talked in the past about how the actual stunt guys that were the football players They always had to keep their helmets on because a lot of them were mid-20s, late-20s. Some of these guys look like, pardon the expression, grown-ass men. Yeah, very much. So they had to keep their helmets on at all times on the sidelines. And then we had background actors that played the high school football players that looked age-appropriate, but also looked like football players in high school. So there were a lot of kids that were out there that were probably like 21 years old that may or may not have ever played football, but they at least looked like they were in shape and looked like they could have played football. But they never actually did the stunts. Okay, we ate that cue. Oh, so this is a thing now, huh? <laughs> Thanks for that Q&A, guys. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys so much. Keep the questions coming because we love answering them. It's definitely fun. It gives us something to do other than just yap at each other. All right, Stacey, you ready to move on to the rewatch portion? Yeah. Let's do it.
Here's my opening thoughts of this episode. Are you ready? I'm ready. Blah, 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 football things and football stuff is happening, but it seems like they're shutting Matt out. I had no idea what they were talking about. Very observant of you, Stacey. Football stuff. I'm going to tell you exactly what they were talking about. Oh, good. So earlier in the previous episode, the Panthers and Coach Taylor elected to start running what's called a spread offense. And a spread offense is essentially, I mean, it sounds exactly like what it is. You literally spread the field, but it becomes more of a passing attack usually. I mean, you can also run the football out of a spread. You've got wide receivers lined to the ends of the field, basically. And you've usually got a five wide receiver set, I believe, in a spread offense. So it's usually a passing offense. Stacey, come on. This is interesting stuff. Our listeners are loving it. Usually you're going to be throwing the football a lot more out of a spread offense. And if that's the case, you're going to want someone who's got a stronger arm. In that particular case, that goes to J.D. McCoy. So basically what happened is coaches decided he's going to start running a dual quarterback offense, which is kind of controversial. So J.D. McCoy and Saracen at the start of this game are both kind of struggling in this new offense. Coach elects in the final drive to put J.D. McCoy in the game. And the Panthers are losing the whole entire game. This is common. You know, Panthers don't really turn on the Jets until the last minute of the game. There's a previous question, something that doesn't legitimately happen in American football. Not mm-hmm. every game is decided in the last minute of a game. That's true. You know, some games you just beat the crap out of a team, especially a team that's like a state championship team. They would win some games by a lot more points. It's also really rare for a freshman to be varsity QB1. That Ooh. is very, very rare, but they've more than talked about how amazing this kid is. Oh, yeah. They said he's better than Jason Street, and Jason Street had offers to every college in the country. Yeah. I mean, it's rare for a freshman to start, but if the guy's that good, it's not that rare. So anyway, J.D. McCoy gets the ball on the last drive in like the last minute and a half of the game, leads the Panthers down the field, literally gets him down to the three-yard line. And in the final seconds of the game, they bring Saracen in, and Saracen punches the ball in on what's called a naked bootleg. Saracen, yes, technically wins the game on the final play, but JD's the one who got him in that position by driving him down the field. They lift JD up, and nobody cares about Matt. Yeah. That was teamwork, and you guys are just, I don't love this new, like, of the land thing happening. It's kind of ridiculous, but I mean, this same thing happened at University of Alabama a couple years back. They had a guy who was a quarterback who was a Heisman candidate. He went down, got injured. They brought in another guy. The other guy wound up playing better. And then this guy was the second coming of Christ. And this guy who was the former Heisman candidate, by the next season, he was transferring because he knew he no longer had a job. I mean, that's how crazy competitive it is especially at these schools where there's these studs at every position. I grew up in Miami, and back in the day, the University of Miami was like the best college football team in the country. And they had a saying at the University of Miami that we don't rebuild, we reload. One guy graduates, the next guy steps up and is ready to go. There is no rebuilding. Oh, this all feels very yucky. Well, Stacey, it's football stuff. Don't worry about it. The Dillon Panthers at this point in time, the fans have at least, I think, seen the future and the future is J.D. McCoy. So that's basically all you need to know. All you need to know (laughs) is that in the end, J.D. McCoy looked really, really good when he got some playing time. So like I was saying, blah, 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 football stuff. We're saying essentially (laughs) the same thing is what I mean. I'm glad that my descriptive definitions for you were, yeah, blah, 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 football stuff. That's what I said. All right. Let's move on to the next thing, Stace. I love tattoos. I have tattoos. Uh I love them on other people. You definitely do have to have parental consent to get a tattoo at Julie's age. So I don't know what's up with Dylan Tattoo Shop. Maybe Tyra's (laughs) just friends with them. Yeah, maybe Tyra knows the tattoo artist. Who knows? That's illegal. This whole scene, though, it kind of cracks me up. It reminds me of when I was 12 years old. I was a kid who grew up in the 80s. You know what I mean? And every 
rocker had an earring and I was like, I want to know. Oh, even every cool actor. Yeah. And then all my friends' parents allowed them to get earrings at 13. Mm. So all my friends in elementary school had gotten earrings and I wanted an earring so bad. And my dad was like, not a chance. He goes, you ever want to get a job? Somebody sees that earring in your ear or sees even that you have a hole in your ear. You'll never work. You'll never get a job. Is that what your dad sounds like? A little bit. Yeah. My family's from New Jersey originally. So my dad's actually born in Tampa. My grandfather was from New Jersey. So there's like this East Coast kind of vibe. Yeah, you have it too. So then you add in the Jewish element. My dad sounds more like this. But anyway, my dad was very adamant about me not getting an earring. But he was like, when you turn 18, you can do whatever the hell you want. So when I turned 18, I got an earring and I came home. I was still living under his roof. You'll never work. You'll never get a job. (laughs) Look at me now, dad. I got a podcast. And an earring. And an earring. I actually wound up getting three earrings, Stacey. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I had two in my left ear, one in my right. Derek, if I tried hard enough, I could get an earring through that. You could definitely get an earring through my left ear. Oh, I'll get it through your right. Don't worry about it. I'll do it. I mean, you could do it. Yeah, I'm going to bleed. Two stories. I have lots of piercings in my ears. And when Mm -hmm. you and I had a baby on the show, they also made me wear giant hoops. And the baby grabbed the hoop and split my earlobe in two. And it hurt really bad. Really quickly, when I was 17, I decided I wanted to get my tongue pierced. Didn't Mm. ask my parents, whatever. Just went and got it done by myself. I was trying to hide it from my dad, but he saw like something. Wait a minute. So you got your tongue pierced at 17. So you're telling me you can get a tongue piercing at 17, but you can't get a tattoo? Yes, because it's not permanent. You can get anything, well, within reason. You can get piercings by the time you're 16. Huh. Okay, go on. Sorry to interrupt. I guess while I was working for him at a football game or something, he could see something shiny in my mouth and he goes, stick out your tongue. And I was like, "Mm mm-mm. And he goes, stick out your tongue. And I showed him. He was so mad because I was about to go to theater school and I'm a singer and that's my tool or whatever. But also anytime one of his friends came around, he'd be like, stay, show him what an idiot you are. Stick your tongue out. <laughs> show Babe Loffenberg what an idiot you are. And I'd be like, I got a tongue ring. Hey, I got a tongue ring, dad. Don't worry about it. I ate salsa and it got infected. And so I had to take it out. My roommate in college, Chris Price, this guy, he got a tongue ring. But the problem is Chris couldn't talk with it. So he's always like this and he's always licking it and like, <laughs> sticking it out of his mouth. I never understood. And it was really weird because on every other level, Chris was a very conservative guy. He like wore plaid I'm sorry, shirts. I can't picture Chris Price with the tongue piercing. It didn't make sense. He was like a polo shirt wearing starched plaid button up. That's amazing. With a tongue ring. It was like, this is completely and totally out of place with every other element of who you are as a person. Moving on. Did I completely forget that the street baby was born and they decided <laughs> the baby was coming? What happened? No, 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 you, you didn't. You didn't. Oh my God. To be honest with you, I had to go back and look, but this is the first time that we've seen Street this season. The last time we saw Street was at the end of season two when he had just found out from Aaron, the waitress that he had slept with, that she was pregnant. As we learned in the season before that, that's just enough time to have a baby in Dillon, Texas. True. It has happened before. If you get knocked up in November, guess what? Off season is for baby making. Off season, yeah. I mean, in between seasons on Friday Night Lights, that's when people get pregnant. That's how it rolls in Dillon, Texas. The only one who didn't is me, who are a big old pregnant. That's right. You had to be pregnant all throughout the show. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, that's the last time we saw them. But where we pick up here, I love this. We've got Hurt back, which is one of my favorite things, as you know. And Street's a ball of stress in this scene. He's cleaning up in he and Herc's apartment out of anticipation of baby Street's entrance. Specifically, Street's trying to get rid of the nudie mags that Herc's keeping around. And Herc always makes me laugh. I mean, this is when Herc reminds Street, because they're talking about hiding the the porno mags or whatever, and Street's like, you got to get rid of these. And he goes, 
Babies love vaginas. They just took a great trip through one. It's like looking at a postcard. <laughs> Maybe one of my favorite FNL lines in the history of Friday Night Lights and the delivery on Herc's end is just spectacular. Kevin throughout this episode is just gold. He's crushing just it. laying down gold. Just crushing it. And this is the first time I'd ever gotten the chance to really work with Kevin Rankin. Well, that's not true, actually. We got to work together on Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy. And we actually had scenes together on Grey's Anatomy, but it was very heavy stuff. Riggins verbatim quoting Buddy Garrity is gold to me. And also just like a casual mention of copper wire to his friends. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we have some, we have copper wire money. You have what? Yeah. <laughs> they didn't care. They were like, yeah, sure, copper wire money. He's got copper wire money. As he's just watching TV on the couch and just quoting Buddy Garrity. I just love the delivery that Taylor Kitsch has in this because he just nonchalantly, as you said, like just mentions it. I think he winds up saying it like three different times. He says it to episode. you too. But the first time he hears it while he's moving an armoire in Buddy Garrity's house, and you kind of see his head perk up like, what? Give Matt Saracen a break. This kid cannot catch a break, so he's QB2 again. I feel like the writers get together every single season. They're like, what can we do to destroy Matt Saracen a little bit? Yeah. How can we put more needles in this kid? How like can we beat voodoo doll? his whole being down? Yeah. Our writers are pretty sadistic. I'm not going to lie. One thing I do love, even though it's awful, is Landry blasting power ballads to get over Tyrant. Stacey, after a breakup, what do you listen to? I have two favorite breakup songs. Yeah. One is called Leave by Swell Season. How does that go? He basically just screams. He's all like, you're here. Quit holding my hand. You said what you have to. Now leave, leave, leave. And then he starts screaming. <laughs> or then folds, give me back my black t-shirt. That's a good one. Those are my two. Yours are more vindictive. Mine are more like sad. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't go sad. I go rage. Oh, I go sad. Like, because I get all depressed about what could have been. And I start thinking about all the good things that were going on in that relationship. Even if I'm the one who ended it. Like, I'm like, did I really make the right choice? I'll listen to like Sade. A little Lionel Richie. Lionel Richie would make me angry. But it is, sometimes it's like every song that comes on the radio was written for you. I don't like sitting in that space. I'm going to anger some people here maybe, but never been a Lionel Richie fan. <gasps> I mean, I understand how ridiculously talented the guy is, but it just, it's not my type of music. You don't want to dance on the ceiling? No. Which is, if my cousin is listening to this, this is going to be a point of contention between the two of us. Because you know what Justin, my cousin's bar mitzvah theme was? Dancing on the ceiling. Dancing on the ceiling. Justin, I'm with you. Thank you. I love you. Moving on and putting that one in my Rolodex of Derek things. Street thinks he's going to flip this house in 30 days. The whole house flipping thing. Look, I love that we all got to work together and we had a great time doing it, but it was kind of ridiculous. But also, it was like Keystone Cops every episode with these guys. Flipping a house takes a year. It takes a while. Yes. I'll just also just shout out very, very Marlon Brando here. Oh, thank you very much, Stacey. I'm glad you picked up on that because that is exactly what I was going for. When we were shooting this scene, these guys come to Billy, basically, and they're like, Billy, we want to come to you today. <laughs> it felt like a godfather moment. On your daughter's wedding. <laughs> yes. I am here today, Don Corleone, on your daughter's wedding day, to ask. But they all come to me asking, begging, basically, for Billy to get involved because they know that they can't move forward without some money. And Billy's got this copper wire that is basically money. So I loved when we shot this. Right before we shot it, I went to props and I said, hey, can I get some chips or like a bowl of something just to have something to eat? Because in that scene, famously, Marlon Brando's petting a cat. Mm -hmm. And the cat randomly wound up on set in The Godfather. It wasn't like they brought this cat and Brando just found a cat wandering around the premises picked it up and then was petting this cat all day long. And Aww. they were like, do we keep the cat in the scene? They're like, yes. Oh, yes. What are you cool. do? Brando seems to be like really digging the cat. So just like Marlon Brando, 
not really. I decided I needed some chips in the scene or something. I needed to be eating, looking very professional and on top of it. It's the calmest, stillest Billy Riggins I've ever seen. Yes, that was the objective. I literally was just trying to do my best Marlon Brando, and I was hoping that somebody would pick up on it. And you did, yep. and I'm glad you did. Thank you. You held all the power. And then, of course, he immediately jumps up, and he's like, oh, let's do this. How do we get it going? You know, yeah, he can't hold it. You can for only long. stay calm for so long. Oh, I wanted to say also in that scene, we had to shoot that scene multiple times just because all of us were cracking up so much. This is the first time that I, as I said, I really got to work with Kevin Rankin on a comedic scene. His timing is just so perfect. Yeah, he's very witty. And too. it's little teeny things. It's little things that he would just improv. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a full line. He'd be like, yeah, you're a visionary. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Just little things that just help the rhythm of a comedic scene so much. That is the thing with Kevin Rankin. I haven't worked with him in this scene. Like the guy is kind of a master of like capturing everyone else's rhythm in a scene. And we've discussed this on the show before, where when you get into these scenes where you've got three, four, five people, it could be really, really difficult because you don't know how everyone else is going to react. And people are sometimes talking over each other, or there's like a line that you wanted to get out that you thought was important, but somebody else jumps that line. So you're trying to figure out how everyone works. And it's little subtle things that Kevin does, but it makes the whole entire scene flow. I can't stop singing his praises enough because he's I just amazing. enjoy working with him so much. I call it playing in the space. Like he's playing in the space that we've created in those bounds. Like it's not an easy thing. No, it's not. And he's playing my space. He's great at it. Meanwhile, enough of Kevin Rankin. I mean, not yet. Stupid guy who takes all my jobs. Yeah. <laughs> this scene with Coach and Tammy in bed is so good. Every scene with these guys is so good. I know we harp on it all the time. I don't think that this part of it was scripted. They're supposed to just be having a conversation about Julie. But what Kyle decides to do in the scene is make it like, ah, I just want to go to bed. You can see it in his eyes. He doesn't actually say that. But in his eyes, he's like, I'm sure everything's going to be fine. I'm sure there's nothing to worry about, blah, 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 blah. So the scene kind of starts that way. Coach just wants to sleep. He isn't concerned so much about this tattoo that Julie just got. But then Tammy lets him know that that tattoo is just a part of the problem, that the next step is going to be boys. And then the step after that is parties. And the step after that is drugs. And then she rolls over, basically. And now Coach can't sleep. I really can't stop singing their praises. The uh -huh. two of them are just so damn good together. Even a simple scene like that. Now you know Coach isn't going to sleep at all tonight. And it's like, thanks, Tammy. She's fine. She got it off her chest. Yeah, you know? off her chest. I don't quite get the tattoo to drugs pipeline. I don't either. But, um, <laughs> but, like tattoos are a gateway into drugs. I don't know about that. I don't know that the tattoo is the gateway into drugs. I think what it is, is it's the lying. It's the secrecy. Look, the tattoo is mm. a big thing. It's symbolic of a bigger issue. And look, our generation didn't have as big of a problem with tattoos. You know what I mean? Like everyone I know has a tattoo. I don't have a tattoo. I never liked tattoos personally. But I mean, almost every person I know that's my age has a tattoo. <laughs> but you got to remember, like our parents' generation. Yeah. My dad, like the only people who had tattoos were like, you know, guys who were in biker gangs and like yeah, sailors. Yeah, or vets, like military. Yeah. So it was a very rare thing. And it definitely did say, oh, this person is from this side of life. And that aspect of things, I think, is completely and totally gone now. Yeah, now like, it's just art. Yeah. Terrible art. Or something that means something to you. It's something personal. Or you think that's what it's going to be. And then it turns out not the way you're <laughs> not, like two of mine. Okay. So you're saying the tailors are correct <gasps> in the sense that you're going to regret this decision because you have some that you regret, Stacey. I have two that I regret. Well, one really. Hmm. Rastin is back. 
don't know what you two are up to. Also, I just clocked that Taylor Kitsch has now called two people cats in this episode. Like, you want to go talk to that cat? Oh, you brought this cat over here? Like, all of a sudden, well, Kitsch himself says the word cat a lot. very smooth. Kitsch says, oh, that cat. That cat. Hey, you see that cat? <laughs> you know, the first time I met Taylor, I thought he was a stoner because of the Canadian right, accent. He's just Canadian. Yeah, I just, I didn't realize he was just Canadian. <laughs> It's a very fine line between surfer to Canadian. Yeah, he's like, hey, what's up? Nice to meet you. And I'm like, who is this guy? Yeah. This guy, like, is he high right now? What's going on? I'm like, no, he's not high. Mm-hmm. And Kitsch does not smoke weed, just mm-hmm. FYI. I don't need to get people writing me letters, starting rumors that Taylor's a pothead. Taylor's not a pothead. Just he's just Canadian. He's just Canadian. Very Canadian. I'll explain what's going on here. So what happened is they came to Billy basically because they thought Billy had money. Well, Billy doesn't have money right now. What Billy has is a bunch of copper wire that he can sell. But they didn't tell Street that. They told Street that they've got $30,000 worth of copper wire. And we've got to go to the bank tomorrow. So Billy calls the only person he can think of to get rid of this copper wire, Guy Raston. Not the smartest move on Billy's end. If you remember correctly, the last time we had a run-in with Guy Rast and he pulled a gun on us as well. So it doesn't end up well. This time, it was the exact same. Leaving, jumping in the truck, gun. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, and him calling me short. Yeah, I totally called you short. Which is an improv. That wasn't scripted. He just says, you're short. You're, it's my friend, Joey. This is what friends are for, to call you out on national television and with your insecurities. This was my issue with this scene was I'm trying to suspend my disbelief, but there was also me just watching my three very good friends, Joey, Derek, and Taylor. And it was like, you guys were play wrestling. But then a gun happened. So I was like, oh, well, no, okay. I hope okay, it didn't look it. like we were play wrestling. I hope it looked no, realistic. No, it didn't. But I, I sometimes have to get back into the groove of it, not be like, those are my friends. All right, Stacey. I did point out after this, and we're in the scene with the four of you again in the house. Everyone is calling you short in this episode. Yeah. Kirk, Guy. What's up with that? Because the next scene, we're in the bank, and the street goes, he said something about me being short. And I go, and I literally at that point, as Derek went, why is everyone calling me short? <laughs> that was a natural kinesthetic response. That wasn't scripted either. Scott calling me short. And me responding to it wasn't scripted because I'm like, why is everyone calling me short? That was a very natural, realistic Derek moment, which is another thing that I love about this show is that you can have those moments. And I'm reacting as Billy, but as Derek. I'm not going to say it's pound for pound, but I am an abnormally tall girl. Mm-hmm. And it is an issue. People are like, God, you're tall. And it's like, did you, did you not... Think that, like, I didn't know that. Like, you're telling me this. Yeah. I know. I mean, that's the thing, too, is like, you don't go up to someone who's overweight and say, God, you're fat. Right. But people have no problem going, Whoa, you're short. Right. You know how many people I've met in this business, like fans of the show, that'll be like, Whoa, you're way shorter than I thought you were in real life. Yeah, I get way taller than I thought you were. Who says that? And I was like, Why are you pointing this out? I'm not that short either, by the way, guys. I'm 5'8, FYI, for all you sizes out there. And I'm 6'5. Stacy's not 6'5. I'm 5'10. Stacey's a sizes too, though. She makes comments about my height. I have never. I don't even know if I want to finish this podcast. Oh my God. I'm kidding. It was only to be like, (laughs) can we get this guy an Apple box so I can kiss him? Yeah, give me an Apple box. Oh, yeah. She would say, give me an Apple box. Give me an Apple box. An Apple box, by the way, guys, is something that they actually do use because I have had to use an Apple box before in some scenes. I remember when I was doing the movie 42, there was a scene where they had already set the cameras up and there were three guys walking into a scene. We're supposed to like peek our heads into a door, like the door opens and all three of us are already standing there. And two of the guys I was working with, a guy named Brad Bear, who's like six foot two, and then Ryan Merriman, who's like six foot, maybe six one. 
and then me, who's 5'8". And they were like, dude, this just, it doesn't look right because they had already framed it up, <laughs> the shot, without us, the actors, being in there. So they just brought me an Apple box. And of course, Brad Bayer made fun of my height the whole rest of the shoot. I don't care, guys. I literally, I think it's funny. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me at all. Why would I be bothered by that? Why would I be bothered about people making fun of how tall I am? How many listeners did we just lose? Okay. I do want to talk about this next scene, though. Taylor and I went to grab dinner last night. We were just talking about this scene last night. This scene where we sell the copper wire to Herc's friend was one of my favorite scenes to shoot on Friday Night Lights. It's another one of those where you just can't stop laughing. But we've already discussed how shooting scenes before with multiple people can be chaotic. But as I said before, Kevin Rankin, he's just good at like making stuff work. He's a great scene partner. There was just a natural rhythm with all of us that we just kind of fell into. And, and with all those guys, Taylor and I already had kind of naturally had that but I hadn't worked with Scott before. And so now Scott's in the scene and there's just this natural rhythm between the four of us. I have to say that shooting these scenes with these guys are some of my favorite moments ever being on the show. But I love this moment where basically we just tried to sell the copper wire to Guy Rastin. Guy Rastin was offering us 8,000 for the whole entire thing. This buddy of Kevin Rankin's is like, I'll give you guys 20,000. So all of our eyes go wide. Like this is way more than we thought we were going to get for this copper wire. And then Billy turns around and goes, let me confer with my people. And Taylor goes, why? And I'm like, yeah, why? Exactly. And why? And boom, we immediately turn around and just sell it. So like the negotiation goes nowhere. I don't know if anyone else found it funny, but to me, I'm like the rhythm, the pacing of all these scenes with Kevin, with Scott, with Kitsch. The four of you guys are so funny together. Well, thank you. Because I know I'm loving it. I love watching it. I love what all these guys bring to it. And it's just really fun for me. And Scott Porter plays a really good, like, straight guy to y'all's yes. buffoons. Yes. And Scott just kind of adopted that role where he's the straight guy and the rest of us are just bumbling mm-hmm. idiots. And we'll talk about that later on. But yeah, Kitch and I were talking about this last night and just laughing to the point where our cheeks hurt. I also love in this scene, sorry to keep harping on it, how our DP Todd McMullen and our camera operators got this shot with Kitsch and Porter and I through the latticework fence. That's what we call shooting dirty on a TV show or on a film. And a dirty shot is essentially a shot where someone or something is in the foreground and it's kind of creating this really stylistic kind of look to a shot. And it really just makes the shot that much more interesting. As I said, it's more stylized. And in the case of FNL, it gives us this fly on the wall kind of sense that we're seeing something that maybe we shouldn't be or we're privy to a very private moment. You may not notice it all the time when you're watching the show, but that's part of the reason why I think Friday Night Lights has this feel of being very realistic because of the camera movement and because of where they decide to set the cameras up on the show. It feels like you're watching a documentary. So that's what we talk about when we talk about a documentary style feel. Keep an eye out as an audience when you're watching the show just for those shots. And you can be like, oh, that's a dirty shot. That's a dirty shot. I really, really, really like Shelby. Yeah. Saracen's mom. I hope that I'm right in this because it's Friday Night Lights and I don't want like my heart to be broken. And it's I'm It's Friday wrong. Night Lights and you know that the writers love to destroy Matt Saracen on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. If it was anybody else's mom, but like, I really like her. <laughs> no, I hear you. I like her too. I don't really remember what happened with her story. So I'm interested to find out where it goes myself. I screamed at the TV in the next scene. Baby horse! (laughs) She's also called a pony, but I out loud screamed baby horse. This was a really lovely and beautifully shot 
moment on Friday Night Lights. Cash is driving up to this ranch to see this baby horse in this stable while the song Eyes Wider Than Before plays underneath. And it's just a really beautiful glimpse into all the elements coming together to create a scene. We've talked about this before where you've got the writing first and foremost, but then the directing, the cinematography, the music, the props, the wardrobe, the acting, and the locations, locations, locations. We talked about it earlier, Stacey, but locations is such a huge thing on this show. It's a beautiful scene because of the locations. And that's one of the things that sets Friday Night Lights apart. We shot everything on location. I can't think of another TV show that shot everything on location. I can't. No other show I've I done mean, has. There are shows like Law & Order SVU where like, you shoot a lot of exteriors. You're shooting in and around New York City a yeah. lot. I mean, I just worked on SVU. You still shoot in a set. The bullpen's on set. The courtroom's on set. People's houses are on set. My house on the show was on set. On Shameless, we shoot all of the interiors on a soundstage for four episodes, and then we fly to Chicago, and you do four episodes worth of exterior. Interesting. I mean, honestly, guys, it's one of the things that sets Friday Night Lights apart. And I know that we've discussed before part of this deal that was worked out with Friday Night Lights and DirecTV to basically save the show in seasons three, four, and five. But with that, and I think we've discussed this, there was also a substantial budget cut that was made. So as seasons three, four, and five roll on, I think it's important to realize the budget cuts that were made for music because music can be extremely expensive. The song choices become a little bit more obscure, but you mm. wind up finding these lovely songs like this one from Scott Matthews. It's a fairly obscure song. It was not a hugely popular song. Kudos to our music supervisors for finding this stuff. They're so good. Because in the first season alone, we had music from Pearl Jam, Beck, Outkast, Justin Timberlake, Tom Petty, Audio Slave. Going forward, you're not going to have that. But what it allows for also is finding some really, really lovely musicians. I mean, Stacey, I don't even know if you remember this, but we had Leon Bridges play the fifth season of Friday Night Lights. He was playing in Buddy's Bar. But at that time, Leon Bridges was nobody. No one knew who Leon Bridges was. He was just a local just Austin a Texas, musician. Yeah, just a Texas yeah. guy. Hello, it's me. I'm back. Your local tattoo expert. Unless this place in San Antonio is going to cut off Julie's skin and suture it back together, she's not getting her tattoo removed that day. It takes months to a year to remove a tattoo, especially a fresh one. So I do not understand what they're talking about here. I don't think it's so much that they really intend to go have it removed. I think it's just Tammy is flabbergasted. But she found this special place. She found a special place in San Antonio. Well, the point is, I, I will, I will have that ankle removed. That is my ankle. It's, it, it's, it's the flabbergasted. I get that. But they're in the car driving to this place for tattoo removal, and I'm like, you, you guys are going to have to do this every month. So this, yeah. and I did actually love the scene though. Sorry, this scene comes later. This was the talk of yeah, tattoo removal. Yeah, this is the talk of tattoo And removal. I'm like, guys, that's not how tattoo removal works. I hate to admit this, but if I'm being super honest, if mm -hmm. I was Matt Saracen, I think I'd quit. I think I quit the team. I'm glad he doesn't because I do think Coach is right. I do think it's the kind of thing that you wind up regretting for the rest of your life if you do. I know people that did. My dad being one of them. My dad quit football his junior year. And to this day, my dad is like, I wish I would have just stuck it out. It's a hard time not being where I'm not appreciated for all the hard work that I've done. Ooh, ah, it hit me. Those Riggins boys say Buddy is not a fan of you and your brother. He also called the four of you a clown car of idiots, which yes. um, I loved. Later in this scene, the realtor winds up calling Street to tell him that the deal's basically fallen through. And we just decided as a group that every time that Street <laughs> is on the phone in these episodes making an important phone call, we would be in the background doing our job, which was to be as loud and as obnoxious as possible to make it really impossible for Jason, a.k.a. Scott, to do his job. Sometimes it would have him turn around and be like, guys, shut 
up. You know what I mean? But it works for the scene because he's the ringmaster. He's the one trying to rein us in because we're the idiots. We'll talk about it in an episode coming up because there was one moment in particular in a couple episodes that really just kind of sent it over the edge. It's, it's hysterical. But it does seem that Street knows the way to Buddy's heart, the way to yes. get him to do what you want. You talk football. That's all you have to do. That's all you, That's have, all you to have to do. do. You could get pretty much anything out of Buddy Garrity if you just remind him of... A good old football story. (laughs) Remember when? I am finding Herc to be a bit of a renaissance man. He called somebody Willie Loman once, so he is into (laughs) theater. Yes. And now he is talking about Burt Bacharach, and you have no idea who that is. I am intrigued by Herc and the things that he enjoys. Everybody loves Herc. Moving on. Stacey, have I ever told you how much I love Grandma Saracen? I think so. She's got the one-liners. I mean, she may not have a ton in every episode, but she comes in and when she's in a scene, she just steals it. And in this particular one, Shelby, Saracen's mom, has come home from grocery shopping and she's bought the wrong groceries. She's bought groceries that Grandma Saracen does not like, Mm -hmm. specifically grape jelly. And Grandma Saracen says, young lady, if you ever do buy something that I want, I might want to eat right there. It's where I like she to just smacks the cabinet, and smacks the cabinet, <laughs> and walks out of the scene, and it just has me cackling. It was very good. And going, Luann Stevens is so damn good. I love her in everything. I've been watching Reservation Dogs on FX, mm-hmm. and Luann pops in there at the start of an episode and just crushes it. She is so friggin' good. Why she isn't working on everything is beyond. I feel that way about almost everyone on this show, though. Almost. Almost. Okay, this going to San Antonio, and thank God it doesn't happen, is just a perfect Julie Tammy scene when that yeah. she pulls over and right outside the car. Like, I don't even have anything to say about it. It's just perfect. I have something to say about it. Oh, God. Have I told you how much I love the locations? On this show? <sighs> you guys, this is what I deal with. Have I ever talked to you about what I call the 12th man, which is the locations? <sighs> And the locations being Texas in particular. But yes, once again, man, the locations. Can't stop talking about it. Oh my God. It's spectacular. That's it though. This was a perfect ending of this episode. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode. It was. Guys, that's it for season three, episode five. But join us next time for season three, episode six, titled It Ain't Easy Being J.D. McCoy. But until then, clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mandy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to clearEyesFullHeartsPod at gmail.com. Find us on social media. I'm Stacey Oristano on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Derek Phillips on Twitter and underscore Derek Phillips on Instagram. And check out our websites, clearEyesFullHeartsPod.com, Cadence13.com, and BlackBarrelMedia.com. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week.